0: Hello and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsick, and I am the founder of Honest Politics, LLC. My company does political research for everyday Americans, not for politicians. So today we're going to talk about obesity, the epidemic that it is, and what can be done to stop it. I'm going to go through the table of contents real quick on my notes and then give you everything that you need to know about obesity. I think it's a really critical public health topic and something deeply personal to all of us because we all... Have control over our bodies to an extent. We're all controlled by the system that we're in to an extent. So, I think by the end of this podcast, you will have a better idea of what factors influence obesity within society and within ourselves. Also, how, you know, some ideas to mitigate it for yourself. Or is it an issue at all? Some people will claim that obesity is not that big a deal. We're going to talk about that. So, To get started, we're gonna have an introduction, then a problem description. What is the issue with obesity? Why is it such a big deal? Economics, how big of an impact does obesity have on the economics of the country or the world? The disproportionate impact, whereas in some people are affected by obesity more than others just because of demographics. Negative health consequences of obesity, so what does it do to you physically? policy solutions, because this is a politics podcast after all, what can be done on a political or public policy level to mitigate obesity's negative consequences, and then individual solutions. What can you do as a person to mitigate it within your own lives or to uh, help your family and friends out if they're suffering from obesity? So let's get started with the introduction. The hook as it is, the reason we're looking at this is that the National Institute of Health says obesity causes about 300,000 deaths in the United States every year. So obviously it's a huge issue. If you think about the coronavirus pandemic we just had, that killed about 600,000 people within a year, and that's a once in a century event. This kills half as many every single year, pandemic or not. You could even claim this is a pandemic in a way, it's an epidemic. Just because it's not a communicable disease doesn't mean it's not a disease. So when we talk about obesity, laying some ground rules, first off, I am not a physician. I am not a nutritionist. I have a master's degree in public policy. I am not trained to give you any health advice whatsoever. If you're concerned about weight or you want to talk anything health, do not listen to anything I have to say here. Go to a physician and get clinical help. From somebody who's changed to do that. That being said, um, I'm going to talk about obesity in a general sense and from the research that I did. Lastly, before we get started, I did all this research from, of course, some government sources, but mostly physicians and academic articles researchers. This is not YouTube videos. This is not, you know, CNN. This is not random articles. These are from physicians with complicated scientific and practical viewpoints, people who treat obesity in real life, or research it clinically. So you can trust a lot of what you see in this, but obviously for health decisions, for personal health decisions, see a physician. Let's talk about how we're gonna talk about obesity. When you're talking to someone with obesity, understand you're talking to someone with a disease You're not saying an obese person. You're saying a person with obesity. That's not just coming from me. That's what all the physicians I've researched, that's how they frame it, people who are experts in this field. I also like to talk about it as a health topic. It's not an appearance topic. It's not like obese people are any less attractive or any less worthy because of how they appear. It's a health issue. There are certain negative health consequences with being obese, and of course, I've seen articles from the Atlantic or whatever that I skim real quick, and they're like, Well, we don't know if being obese really impacts your health. And I can tell you, um, everybody agrees, every serious person agrees, se- obesity is a bad thing for your health or for anybody's health. I also want to get that off the bat real quick. We're sticking to the science on this podcast, we're not going to hashtag follow the science unless we hashtag don't want to. We're just going to hashtag follow the science, even if it's inconvenient science. Another thing is that people are, you know, you can define your body to a varying degree, but your body does not define you. You have to stay positive about this subject and understand that people are people. Again, we're not looking at appearance, we're looking at it as a health issue. Um, We're not going to berate or attack people because that'll just make them more defensive. I think the biggest thing also is that this is not a willpower issue. When you see someone with obesity, it's not that they're weak-minded or something like that. This is a systemic issue. In the United States, in places around the world, the default state is to eat a lot, to be sedentary, to um, not have as much exercise, to eat a ton of meat, to eat a lot of saturated fats. So you have to basically defy the entire system that's set up for you in order to not have obesity. So this is not a willpower issue. Every physician I've listened to on podcasts or everything I've read is says it's not a willpower issue. It's not an individual decision to be obese. It's an epidemic rooted in economic, social and political systems. You know, the CDC, they don't even talk about these systemic issues very much. They just put they push the individual choice narrative on people, which... You know, I take government websites with a grain of salt because obviously they're not going to bash the American system of governance. They're not going to talk about how the agricultural industry produces fatty meats and high-energy-dense caloric foods like corn in all our food, so... You have to keep in mind the CDC has a pro-America bias, a pro-American system bias. Another big problem with obesity is childhood obesity. Because, I mean, think about the willpower issue. You're a child. You don't have the willpower or the education to not be obese. You know what I mean? It's not like three-year-olds are choosing to eat broccoli over a McDonald's hamburger. You're given what your parents give you and you eat what your parents give you. And it's not until you're like in middle school or high school that you really start to have the agency to influence your own diet. And by that time, you could be obese already. And while we're on this subject, they contributed that to a bunch of factors, like not as many physical, not enough PE classes. Kids are not going outside like previous generations. You know, it's not like, go out and play until the sunset and then come home for dinner. We live in a world where parents are trying to be more protective of children. There's more, you know, child abductions on the news, so it's not like parents are letting their kids out all the time. There's more calorically dense foods for kids to eat. And then the physicians, of course, they talked about it as a willpower issue again. You can't blame the parents for childhood obesity because the parents are probably suffering as well. And if you play the blame game, and if you try to attack the way people are raising their kids, it usually just reinforces their views and makes them defensive. And then lastly, in this introduction section, I want to talk about a Western type diet. You're going to hear that term a lot. A Western type diet is defined by one of the studies I read as processed food, fast food, convenience products, snacks, sugar drinks, lacking in vitamins, lacking in fiber, And then I added eating lots of meat because that's from graduate school. You know, eating lots of meat is a Western type kind of diet usually. Um, Of course, there's coastal communities that mostly eat fish in their diet or whatever. But to have such a high protein diet is an American kind of diet. It's a Western European kind of diet and it's growing throughout the world. So we're going to see how that influences both obesity and other systemic issues. Thank you for listening to this introduction part. Now we're gonna go on to the problem description. What's the issue with obesity? I got most of this from a report on global conditions. You're gonna hear an entire list of sources at the end of this podcast, but let's get going with the problem description. In 34 member countries of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, so basically the world's richest countries, more than 50% of adults and 17% of children are overweight or obese. And obesity goes hand-in-hand with undernutrition. You think of eating a lot as making you obese, but if you have low nutrition... You can have low nutrition in these foods. Think of just straight bread. If you just eat bread all day, you might get obese, but you don't have the nutrients you need to be healthy and survive. As of 2019, worldwide there are 2 billion people who are food-deprived. The overweight and obese number is now two billion as well, and it's eclipsed the number of people who are food deprived. There's more people who are having too much food rather than people who don't have enough food yet. Poorer nations take on a Western style diet of ultra processed high fat, and that's growing at an increased rate. Diets have more sugar, more salt, people are living more sedentary lifestyles with less manual labor, and you're seeing a correlated rise on-the-go pre-packaged food. All of this combined contributes to obesity. India has the highest number of undernourished children, but also has one of the fastest growing obesity rates. So you think about it, India, countries like Brazil, China, Chile, they have undernourishment, and that was the problem. But you're pumping out all this cheap, unhealthy food, and now obesity is also a huge problem. It's one of the fastest growing problems in these developing countries. The report was saying the first thousand days of a child's life, beginning in pregnancy until their second birthday, is crucial for the window of proper nutrition. You can develop a preference for fruit, vegetables, stuff like that, in the womb even, if the mom's eating fruits and vegetables or giving it to you as a child. Or you can develop a preference for fat and sugar from the womb all until, you know, the second birthday. So these early... Lifehood decisions, these things that are not in your control, but are somewhat in the parents' control, they are influencing how you develop preferences into adulthood. If a baby is undernourished in the womb, it may hoard food later, leading to ease, an easier time becoming obese. So if you lack food for a while, you can crave and hoard it later, meaning like you just eat a ton of food at a time or your body starts storing fat a lot. So even being undernourished in the womb can prime you for obesity later in life. So then this report took an interesting turn. It was trying to link obesity with climate change and undernutrition and saying they're systemic, they're combined epidemics with similar societal causes. Um, The food systems that cause these problems generate 25 to 30% of greenhouse gases. They're saying cars are a form of transportation that make people more sedentary. Cars also generate about 15% of emissions for greenhouse gases. They're saying disasters from climate change will destroy crops and lower nutrition in childhood. um, That creates obesity. And then subsidies that fund caloric crops like corn, soy, and wheat are not funding nutritious crops. You can see, I think they call this intersectionalism where you try to link issues that people care about together so that you start to care and think more of the system as a whole. It's all connected, whether it's climate change or obesity. It's, it is kind of connected, I guess. Culture and marketing around the world celebrate junk food and they put down vegetables. You think like, you know, the cartoons you're watching, people are like, ew, gross vegetables. We hate that. So you're primed as a child to not like vegetables culturally, in addition to how it might taste. I think vegetables taste great. If you get that culture crap out of your brain, you know, does McDonald's actually taste better than grilled vegetables? If you have a taste test and you try to get rid of all your biases, of course the vegetables taste better. But you're culturally primed to think that fast food tastes good, or Doritos, or Mountain Dew, or whatever. Um, This went on to say that a third of the world's adult population is overweight or obese, which is kind of crazy, the entire world, even in these undernutrished um, countries like China or India, obesity is climbing because of the cheap food. Another big reason that obesity is a problem, 80% of deaths in Western society are caused by non-communicable diseases. So 80% of deaths are caused by things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes. You can't spread these things from one person to another. In the past, in the olden days, and in countries with poor nutrition, not safe water, um, terrible sewer systems, you're getting most of your death from communicable diseases like malaria. So if you have sanitation, I mean not so good sanitation, you're gonna have more communicable diseases and die like they did in the olden days. Whereas if you have good public health systems that create a more sanitary society, you're going to die from these non-communicable, long-term chronic diseases like diabetes. And where do these chronic diseases come from? A lot of them come from obesity. They are made worse by obesity. It's because of sanitation and antibiotics and vaccines that more well-off countries like the United States are dying from, you know, even things like chronic low-grade inflammation it's well established that tissue specific and systemic immune responses and metabolic regulations are all highly integrated. Basically, like your immune system, your digestive system, the tissue in your body is all connected. If you have not as great of a diet, it's going to affect every part of your body. The overconsumption of Western style caloric rich diets combined with chronic overnutrition and a sedentary lifestyle in Western societies makes a state of chronic inflammation, it contributes to non-communicable diseases, and it's a big public health problem throughout the entire world with epidemic dimensions. So I'm actually kind of just quoting a very long research article I found that had 189 citations. Holy. (laughs) So imagine how much time it took to make that research paper. That's what I mean about these being good sources here the western style lifestyle western lifestyle is associated with other changes like a higher exposure to air pollution think about cities and all the cars decreased encounters with microbial infections and a heightened amount of stress so we're living more sedentary stressful lifestyles we're not being exposed to microbes that boost you know our natural immune systems not being trained as well because of The sanitation we do have. I guess that's kind of a double edged sword in a way, but I'd rather not die from microbes than need to be exposed to them a lot. Whatever. The Western style diets are rich in refined sugar, salt, flour, processed meat, purified animal fats, and food additives. They contain a low amount of fiber, vitamins, minerals, and other plant derived molecules such as antioxidants. So if you're eating less vegetables, you're getting fewer of these minerals and vitamins that have an added benefit rather than just keeping you slim. Furthermore, Western-style diets are particularly energy-dense, and they exhibit high glycemic indexes, which promote a fast rise in blood glucose. Um, so if you're spiking your blood glucose by having a lot of high-energy food at once, that throws your body out of whack hormonally. So that's not good, and it can contribute to obesity. And then, you know, I have a anti-animal meat bias because I don't like how the animal production industry tortures animals, but in addition, cholesterol from animal fats and meat is one of the robust drivers of inflammation within your body. Um, the consumption of derivatives from red meat, eggs, and dairy products are linked to an increased risk of disease. It also influences your gut biome. So inside your gut is an entire biome of bacteria. That bacteria helps to break down the food, and keeping a harmonious microbial biome in your gut improves your digestive health. It improves your overall health. When you have a western-style diet, you're contributing to destroying the bacteria in your gut, and this unbalanced gut biome can lead to inflammation and digestive stress, although your DNA does contribute to that as well. Meat can make these symptoms worse, But the introduction of vitamins, a lot of the time through vegetables and fruits, can restore your biome health. And then Western style diets can also increase the risk of asthma and heightened allergic reactions. So that was all the problem description. Um, I've been talking for 20 minutes. That's crazy, this is gonna be a long one. That's how big of a problem obesity is. So for the articles that say it's really not a big deal, you need to read some of the science and understand that you can't just ignore this. So now we're going to get to the economic impacts of obesity. So the worldwide impact of obesity is that it causes $2 trillion in healthcare costs annually, which is 2.8% of the global domestic product. America's food supply chain has enough food for 4,000 calories per person. So we produce enough food in this country to feed you twice as much as you need every single day. It's not like there's a lack of food in this country. America's very good at producing a ton of food. Um, Publicly reported companies need growth every year. So basically, food companies need to pump out a ton of food in order to increase their profits every year, in order to get more investors to invest. So basically, these companies are not looking after your health so much as they're looking after profits. They're increasing portion sizes and stuff as a way to sell more food. Then if you look at culture a little more, obesity went from an issue of the wealthy to an issue of the poor, particularly in minority populations. They're actually targeted by the food industry. So if you look at Coca-Cola and who they donate money to, who they help advocate you know, issues for, it's minority community organizing. These unhealthy companies are going to minority neighborhoods and donating money or helping with causes because they know that low-income areas are more likely to buy Coca-Cola. They're more likely to buy convenience foods like chips and stuff. So these companies are actually preying on minority neighborhoods and trying to get them to overconsume and become obese, addicted to their high-sugar, high-fat, high-salty foods. And then you see, you know, some countries like Chile are taking action. They took cartoons off of food packages. They're making sure that kids are not buying food for the cartoons. They're buying it for other reasons. And, you know, in minority neighborhoods, it's been shown that healthy food is more expensive than unhealthy food. Continuing with the disproportionate impact, some areas have higher levels of obesity. Some areas have less. And a study done found that it's the socioeconomic status is the reason behind these geographic variations. The highest density of obesity and the lowest physical activity rates are concentrated in areas of sprawling metro areas with poor food access, mostly in the southeastern United States. States with obesity rates above 35% include Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. And these are mostly deep red states. These are mostly, you know, states with When you think of the diets of Mississippi, for example, you think high fat, high sugar, and a lot of poverty. The international food policy founds that for lower-income households, nutritious food is more expensive than unnutritious food. Non-Hispanic black adults have the highest prevalence of self-reported obesity at 40%. Then Hispanic adults are at 34%, and then non-Hispanic white adults are at 30%. Basically, if you're black or Hispanic in this country, you're more likely to be obese than white people. Which you can see it's part of the systemic issue again. We know systemic racism is a problem, we know that systemic obesity is a problem, and unfortunately they're kind of combined in that way. This next section is about negative health consequences. We, I listened to an episode of a podcast, basically, that talked about it. Starting at the beginning of the pandemic, they were saying lifestyle is the key to managing obesity. You have to treat obesity like the laundry. It's never completely finished. You just have to keep working at it. And you'll get some pink shirts out of the laundry occasionally, but you just have to keep trying and do better next time. Um, so you might slip up sometimes when trying to manage this disease, but you have to just keep going at it. We know that obesity increases upper respiratory issues, it decreases mobility, and causes orthopedic problems. So basically, COVID is worse because of obesity, because obesity makes upper respiratory infections, which COVID is, makes it much worse. Um, when you have all that extra weight on you, it puts stress on your skeleton as well. So it causes joint pain, Um There's stress on your skeleton and your tendons. It's just, you're not naturally meant to have that much extra weight on you, and that's why it causes problems. So obesity increases the risk of severe illness from COVID-19. That's pretty much sound science. Obesity may triple the risk of hospitalization from a COVID infection. It's linked to impaired immune function, um, Obesity decreases lung capacity and ventilation because if you have more fat, it's decreasing the amount of space in your cavity for your lungs to expand. A study found that the risk of hospitalization, ICU stay, and death are higher if you increase blood, I mean, BMI. Especially for those under 65, the more weight you have, the more likely you're gonna have serious COVID complications. And through November 2020, 30% of hospitalizations of COVID are people who are obese. There may be a protective effect from obesity. This is an interesting podcast I listened to where you might have a higher risk of heart attack or stroke because of obesity, but the obesity might also protect your heart and make it easier for you to survive a heart attack or a stroke. Now, this protective effect obviously has the drawback of you have a heart attack, and you might be more likely to survive it, but you're more likely to have one. So I think that's a pretty obvious trade-off where obesity is probably not a good strategy to survive heart attacks. You also have to think obesity is not just something you gain through high fats and stuff. You could have a disease called lipedema, which um, causes it's a painful fat disease that is more common in women. It concentrates fat on your lower half, so in your legs and thighs and stuff, and a lot of times in your arms as well. Then you have lymphodema, which affects the hands and feet. So these kind of diseases are not solved by diet and exercise. If you lower your obesity rate, it might be able to help with this. So with these kind of diseases, surgery can help, like liposuction, A lot of people see it as a cosmetic surgery, like an appearance enhancer, but liposuction actually can help with these diseases where typical obesity treatments are not as effective. But obesity can worsen lipodema. So that's what I meant before when I said exercise and diet might not help lipodema, but it can help obesity, and by lowering your obesity, you can solve the lipodema. So it's an indirect effect, basically. Another episode of the podcast I listened to, the most common form of fatty liver disease, except for alcohol, is obesity. So if you're obese, you might get fatty liver disease. And fatty liver disease increases cardiovascular stress, it increases risk for types of cancers, including liver cancer, and it makes it more difficult to lose weight by having fatty liver disease. Ways to treat fatty liver disease include physical exercise. There's no specific drug to cure fatty liver disease yet, but just by losing weight, it can help. Which, of course, it's harder to lose weight when you have fatty liver disease, but to treat fatty liver disease, you need to lose weight. So you see how, like, it's not a willpower issue a lot of the time. You need a physician to help you and create a program that's very tailored to you and then saturated fats were shown to make fatty liver disease worse. Now, another episode of this podcast talked about stress. Stress increases a hunger hormone called gremlin, or gremlin, I don't know, (laughs) but I'm not a physician, See, but stress can impact your hormones and make it harder to lose weight. Um, Obesity itself can cause stress, which causes these hunger hormones, which causes it being hard to lose weight because you're stressed out about, oh, COVID kills people who have obesity. Oh my God, now I'm stressed. If I start coughing, I'm going to be stressed because I know I'm obese and all oh. So, you know, you're seeing fitness models on Instagram. That makes you feel guilty. That makes you feel sad. Now you're stressed out. Stress increases um, sleep and decreases hunger sometimes, or it can ruin sleep and harm your health that way. And the doctor was saying that acute stress can be beneficial to you, so if you're stressed out sometimes, that can be good. It can cause you to be more productive or whatever, but chronic stress over a long period of time is horribly delirative to your health. It can have really big negative health consequences to be stressed all the time. Now I'm going to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, we're going to talk about the policy solutions to obesity and then some individual solutions? What can be done more to help you if you have obesity or if you notice it in others around you? Stay tuned, we'll be back in 30 seconds. And we're back. I realize this episode's not going quite how I expected. I'm doing a lot of just reading off notes and it seems a little scattered, but I think next time I do one of these episodes, I'll try to actually write an entire paper and read that for you. It might come off a little more smoothly. I did my best, and I did do a ton of research, as I'm sure you can tell, Um, but I hope you at least sort of enjoy this episode. I think it has a lot of useful information, and if you hire Honest Politics LLC, we can have a phone discussion talking over this in more detail and making things a little more clear for you. Now we're going to go on to the policy solutions. What can be done in the political realm to mitigate obesity's negative impacts, which we talked about ad nauseum. So Mexico passed a 10% sugar tax on drinks in uh, 2013, and people make fun of sugar taxes on, like, soda tax and whatever. They think it's stupid. This reduced purchases of soda by 7.6%. And it reduced purchases of soda by 12% in low-income households. So it worked. Mexico may have reduced obesity by 2.5% by 2024 and prevented 100,000 cases of diabetes. So soda taxes are good. The data shows that it works. Getting rid of sugary drinks does so much. It prevented 100,000 cases of diabetes. And if you know someone with diabetes, you know how difficult it is for one person to live with that, how much it costs. So other ideas for policy changes include front-of-package labeling, nutrition profiling, school-based food regulations and education, market and retail solutions, and marketing controls and regulations. Um, Another thing we can do is change the human culture. Instead of having epic mealtime videos or whatever where we're celebrating steaks and tons of meat and tons of fatty foods, and we're doing fast food reviews on YouTube, we can celebrate vegetables, how good they can be. We can celebrate fruits. We can celebrate eating less, intermittent fasting, these kind of things. If we promoted them in our culture, if politicians had more videos of them eating broccoli instead of ice cream, um, and even though You know, there might be cultural triggers in your brain right now saying, oh, that sounds ridiculous, of course ice cream's better. It's because of the culture you grew up in. It's because America celebrates these high-fatty, high-sugar foods. It's because you had so much of them when you were young, too young to control it. That's what I mean by it being a systemic issue. And of course human biology craves sugar. You crave sugar because... In the wild, you need high-sugar foods like berries to help you survive. But that's what I mean. You're eating berries. You're programmed to want fruit. You know what I mean? You're programmed to try to hunt buffalo. We're not hunting buffalo with sticks anymore. We live in an artificial world. You need artificial means to combat the artificial systems placed in front of you. Unless you're going out and killing deer with your bare hands or rocks and sticks, you are getting a ton of high fats from animal meat through the grocery store or from shooting a deer rather than the way we killed them in the past three, four hundred years ago, even hundreds of thousands of years ago when our DNA was being programmed through evolution. So if we get back to those natural kinds of foods, replace ice cream with apples, replace animal meat every meal with animal meat once every few meals, you're eating a more natural type of diet that your body is used to, that your body was programmed through evolution to want. Obesity is a systemic issue, and the best way to solve it is to get back to the kind of lifestyle and diet that you would have eaten 100,000 years ago. Of course, we know people from that long ago didn't survive very long because of hazards like falling off a cliff or being killed by bears or whatever, or communicable diseases. And we have sanitation to treat a lot of those. We have public safety to prevent a lot of those deaths. So when I say live like you did 100,000 years ago, I'm saying eat more whole fruits, more whole vegetables, eat meat sparingly, have dairy sparingly, Um, try not to have a lot of ultra-processed candy and ice cream and soda. Try to minimize that as much as possible. You know, they say 80% of the results you get from something in life comes from 20% of the effort. So just be more active in your life. Just eat less and eat more nutritiously. Just those three tips you can get 80% of the results from that. So when you see articles and YouTube videos debating, like, is kale better than broccoli? Or, like, which fruit has the most antioxidants? At some point, it doesn't matter. That's the 20% of tiny details that'll only get you a little bit of the results. The big things, just by going for a walk every day, just by going for a jog, you know, just these simple acts that you don't have to think too far through will create a huge amount of benefit. That's what I found through this research. And uh, we'll get back to the notes now, but I think that's a really good takeaway. That's a off-the-cuff thing from everything I've been reading. Some more policy solutions are uh, improving the sedentary work lifestyle, like having workplaces institute more 15-minute breaks, more places where people can go for walks on their time off instead of just You know, sometimes I take a break at work and I go on Facebook. No, like, get out of your desk area, go for a walk, and come back after 10 minutes. It'll do a lot of good for your body. Get your blood flowing, get your digestive system going again. We need more physical education in schools and better education within the school system on what's good food, how to exercise, all of that. And instead of, you know, physical education in school, a lot of the times is us just standing around or playing a stupid sport How about weightlifting? How about running? How about going for walks? How about these kind of practical things that people are going to do later in life as well? So we need better designed PE systems that fit people's lifestyles, for sure. We also need safe playgrounds. One of the reasons that obesity impacts minority and low socioeconomic neighborhoods is because the playgrounds are not safe to go to. Parents don't want to send their kids to these playgrounds sometimes because there's gang activity, there's needles on the ground. And I'm not just generalizing. That's stuff you read about in the news, and that's stuff I've seen driving around Rochester. These playgrounds are empty. We need to improve public safety in order to get kids outside and active. And then I think the biggest one is we need agricultural reform, because if you read Michael Pollan's book called The Omnivore's Dilemma, you'll learn more about how our, produ- our country produces so much corn, wheat, soy, like these cash crops, basically, that are just straight calories, not as much nutrition. We prioritize beef subsidies and stuff like this that the entire food system is created to make money and to pump out as much calories as possible. So that's something you're not going to see on the CDC's website, but the entire United States agricultural system would need to be refocused in order to improve the health of this country. Now that we've talked through the policy solutions, and I'm sure there's other policy solutions, more taxing and spending, more regulation, stuff like that, we're going to go through individual solutions And like I said earlier, these are in note format, bullet point style, so it might be a little disorganized, and it might be a little conflicting. And you should always see a physician rather than listen to me, but this is what I found through the academic research and the physicians talking on the podcast. Rather than using BMI, which is actually a pretty horrible way to measure health, you can use waist circumference as a good measure. How well do your pants fit you? I took a weightlifting class in, uh in college, and he said, you know, how do your clothes fit? This is a common way to measure your body fat percentage and how well you're doing, is just see how your clothes fit. And there are actually diseases of adiposity, which are having excess fat caused by inflammation and other diseases, but you can still look skinny or have a good BMI, even if you have 40% plus body fat. So, You can be obese without even looking obese, is what this research is saying. The physicians on the podcast were saying that having less than... For for women, basically, and this is another thing where people try to say that genders have no differences. Well, physicians know that there is a difference between men and women physically, especially in terms of body fat. Women, it's good to be below 30 to 34% body fat. For men, it's good to be under 25% body fat. Um, And I just want to clear that up real quick. I am pretty sure gender, of course, is a sensitive topic, and some people have more complicated gender issues than others, but it's an extremely dimodal thing. Most people identify as male, and most people identify as female. So when you're talking about general health measures... We can talk about men and women and just leave it at that. And individual physicians can talk to people who are gender or neutral or gender fluid for their individual situations because their bodies may be different depending on hormonal treatments or surgical procedures. So, for women in culture, a lot of the times weight and size are overemphasized. Think of how skinny Barbie dolls are, and think of all the models on TV or on the... Even if you walk around Target or something, look up at the wall, most of the women are very skinny. And I'm seeing some more body-positive models up there who are a little overweight, I guess, or appear that way. And it's good that we're, you know, as a society, saying, look, 40% of Americans are obese. We're going to have people on these advertisements who look like Americans, who look more normal. Um, And women are told in society not to get large muscles because it'll make you look weird, you won't fit into a size 4 or whatever. Um, This is coming from a female physician who's saying all this, by the way. I'm just relaying it to you. These kind of body image things are very destructive. I mean, women should be doing weight training because doing weight training twice a day has been shown to... Increase your life expectancy. I meant to say weight training twice a week. Sorry about that. So these kind of cultural things that affect women differently are pretty disgusting, honestly. We need to focus more on just getting healthy. That means weightlifting. That means cardio exercise. That means eating healthier. But also not shaming people when they have obesity. It is a disease. It's not something to be shamed over the physicians were talking about four main ways to manage obesity. It's diet, exercise, behavior, and medicine. The advice they were saying is that you take someone for who they are and then move them forward. We're not talking about the past. We're not talking about how you may have messed up one day and eaten an entire pizza. (laughs) As a goal of mine one day, because I'm a cultural American, is to eat an entire pizza in one sitting. Now, I think I'm getting into my late 20s. I'm getting to the point where I physically cannot do that. I think I missed my window when I was 17 or 18. It's better to do some kind of exercise rather than no exercise at all. You can't ask someone to go from doing no exercise per week, zero minutes of exercise per week, to 150 minutes per week. That's been shown to depress motivation. You have to set realistic expectations. You know, there's a program called Couch to 5K. They don't have you running a 5K immediately. They have you working up towards it. And if you have a physician or a dietitian, they can help you design a program for you. Now, they were also discussing what's the best exercise to do to lose weight. And the physicians were saying, look, the 80-20 rule, 80%, no, 20% of the effort will get you 80% of the results. Do the exercise you like best. If you like jogging, do it. If you like swimming, do it. If you like walking, if you like weightlifting, if you like playing sports, do that. And you're more likely to do an exercise that you enjoy. So when you're prescribing a fitness plan, it's good to ask the patient what they want to do, or what they hate least, (laughs) and ask them to do that as their exercise. Another thing they were talking about, it's kind of interesting. If you have a higher muscle mass, you burn more calories throughout the day. This is why I was saying weight training is very good. You burn more calories just by having more muscle on your body. Weightlifting should be a part of any person's program or at least some kind of strength training. Like instead of just jogging for long distances, do some sprinting exercises to build up those fast twitch muscles that require a lot of energy throughout the day. One of the first podcast episodes I listened to, we're talking about the American Heart Association's Simple Seven, Life's Simple Seven. These seven tips will help you improve your health and quality of life. The first was to manage your blood pressure because high blood pressure creates strain on the heart, arteries, and kidneys. The second was to control cholesterol because cholesterol clogs your arteries. And I know there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Um, Usually, animal fats like red meat and processed meats like deli meat have high cholesterol, so that's one way to get rid of it. The third was to reduce your blood sugar. Your blood sugar can damage your heart, kidneys, eyes, and nervous system. The fourth was to get active, do daily physical activity, and like I said, just do something you enjoy. The fifth was to eat better, you know, more nutritious foods, stay healthy. Six was to lose weight. I don't like this one as much, but if you reduce your weight overall, it is true that you reduce the burden on your heart, lungs, blood vessels, and skeleton. Just having that extra weight causes all of these things to work harder. And then seven is obviously to stop smoking. Smoking causes lung and cardiovascular disease. So stopping smoking, you can also save up to $2,000 a year to st- if you stop smoking. It's an economic decision as much as a health decision. Next, there was a meta-analysis done of fructose in diets, which is a type of sugar, and they found that if you substitute whole fruits for um, things like ice cream or whatever, or sweetened soda or juices, the whole fruit is much better for you. So if you eat an orange instead of drinking orange juice. Think about how our ancestors ate whole fruit better for glycemic control, and has more vitamins, more fiber, just to have the whole fruit. The doctors on the episode were saying, I'm never going to tell my patient to eat less fruit because it has a lot of sugar in it. Fruit has a lot of benefits for you. And one thing that I slip up on a lot of times is, I'll eat an entire meal like I normally do, and then add fruit on top of it. It would be better if you used fruit to replace something that you normally eat. One trick I love to do is I have fruit in front of my fridge, so at night I know I'm gonna go for a nighttime snack. I have fruit right there and I eat the fruit instead of grabbing chips or something like that. That's, for me, a really good way to incorporate more fruit in my diet. The CDC's website says a lot of fruit and vegetables, lean protein, whole grains, and reducing the number of calories actually improves your immune function. It improves your immune system. I noticed this when I started making more stir fries, eating more vegetables. I get, I get sick much less often, and when I do get sick, I do not get as sick as usual. Also, the general advice is to be active. Regular activity helps us feel better, it helps us sleep better, and regular activity reduces anxiety. It helps with weight loss when combined with caloric reduction and boosts immune function, but it's good to get enough sleep. Another episode talked about intermittent fasting, versus continuous food intake versus dieting. They found that intermittent fasting is actually better for losing fat. The people in this study ate breakfast and then didn't eat for 24 hours until the next breakfast. They did this um, three times per week. I think it's a serious option to consider, but like I said, talk to a physician to see if intermittent fasting is good for you. It is not good for people who don't have the willpower to not eat for that long even if you have a huge meal, you're making up for the fact that you're not eating throughout the rest of the time. Now, I don't like intermittent fasting myself. I start to get dizzy and have headaches if I don't eat for that long. So it really does depend on the individual. Another episode, they talked about how the low-carb diet is not only good for burning fat, but also maintaining weight. A lot of people struggle, they'll lose fat, and then they'll gain it back very quickly by going back to their old lifestyle. But The doctor on this episode said that a low-carb diet is one of the top ways to keep a healthy weight in addition to physical exercise. It's physical exercise and low carbs was near the top of the list for this doctor. Then I looked at the United States Department of Human Services' key guideline for adults. Now, keep in mind this has a pro-USA bias in it. So they're not going to discuss the agricultural systemic factors, but they did talk about how the key to obesity management is to move more and sit less. Just think of that simple mantra, move more, eat less, even if it's a little bit every day. For the most substantial benefits, you need two and a half hours of moderate activity every week or 1.25 hours of vigorous activity, preferably aerobic exercise spread throughout the week, like going for a jog every couple days or so. There's more benefits if you go beyond five hours of exercise each week. And, like I was saying earlier, you should do muscle strengthening activity involving all major muscle groups two or more times a week. So the U.S. guidelines thing has different guidelines for different types of people, and they have graphics to display to general audiences. So if you're a politician or policymaker, that's another thing to keep in mind. Keep it simple. Have nice graphics so that people can very quickly understand what the key points are very quickly. And the doctors were saying we should be investigating the lifestyle of every new patient, whether they're obese or not. You know, these doctors explored different medication options and found that lifestyle changes are better than medication. It's better to live a healthier lifestyle rather than need to rely on pharmaceuticals. You need a physician to help you if you want a pharmaceutical program. There are some drugs that can contribute to a 5 to 10% weight reduction. So they need more research into this area. And the doctors on here again we're saying that there's better drugs coming out that can increase gut health and are more hormone stimulating, but it's a not a willpower or personal responsibility issue. It is a medical issue. So another episode, I was talking earlier about how saturated fats are bad for your liver and stuff. One study found that eating whole dairy products, like whole milk and butter, can actually be beneficial for you. And the doctors on here were a little confused, but like they said, even if the component of a food is bad for you, it's better to have whole foods, more natural kind of foods, like butter, rather than something more artificial like margarine. Even though it has the unhealthy saturated fats, dairy also has vitamins and stuff that, you know, its primary purpose is to help baby cows become healthy adult cows, but we can use it as humans to increase our health because it's a natural thing, um, rather than trying to have something that's artificial. So dairy, in small amounts, can be good for you. They talked in that episode about the Mediterranean diet and how it's probably the most healthy diet. It includes a high amount of vegetables, fruits, cereals, legumes, nuts, and fish, and uses a lot of olive oil as the central fat. So here again, thinking about healthy foods, the base of your diet should be vitamins... I mean, (laughs) should be fruits and vegetables. You can have nuts and stuff like that. Um... They said that supplementing a diet with extra virgin olive oil or nuts can uh, help you increase cardiovascular health and lowers cardiovascular problems like heart attack or stroke by up to 30%. I know when I started cooking more with olive oil, it did improve my health. Just a uh, thing that I do because I use olive oil in all my stir fries, which I eat pretty often. We're almost at the end here, folks. (laughs) We're almost at the end. Vitamins and minerals have their own healthy effects independent of the fact that vegetables and fruits have lower calories. They also just give you more vitamins and minerals, which helps your body function better. Numerous plants have different kinds of antioxidants, fibers, fiber, phytochemicals, um, and lipid-lowering, anti-inflammatory, anti obesogenic and cardio and cancer protective properties. So basically, these vitamins and minerals work in very complex ways. I remember reading this study and being like, I don't understand this biology stuff. They were talking about all these really complicated hormones and amino acids and everything, and you kind of scroll down a little bit past that and see that if you just eat more fruits and vegetables, you'll become healthier in ways that science doesn't even fully understand yet. So I think that's really important, because... Probably all you care about is the end state, getting healthier. Fruits and vegetables are the key to getting there. Less processed foods are the way to getting there. Exercising as much as you can is the way to getting there. Cheetosan is a food fiber found in mushrooms as well as crustaceans. It reduces blood lipid and cholesterol concentrations by binding to dietary fats, thus inhibiting their absorption. So here's another just like, what is Cheetos saying? Who knows, who cares? It is found in mushrooms and crabs apparently, and it's good for you. So that's why you need a varied diet. That includes mushrooms, I guess, unless you're allergic, please don't eat them. So more things they found in their scientific research that I spent hours reading is that not smoking, regular physical activity, Moderate to low alcohol intake and consumption of high-quality food increase your life expectancy past age 50. So if you want to live longer, do all those things. In societies where the Western lifestyle is established in the culture, the last quote I'll leave you with from the giant article I read is, quote, However, in Western societies where the Western lifestyle is established in the culture, adherence to lifestyle changes prove exceedingly difficult. Hence, in order to achieve a reduction of common risk factors associated with prevalent diseases in westernized societies, multimodal national strategies need to be developed with the aim to prevent lifestyle-associated chronic metabolic diseases. Basically, this says, hey, western countries, rich countries of the world, get your shit together. Stop killing your citizens with systems of high caloric foods, low vegetables, disproportionate impacts on minority and poor populations, get healthy programs going to encourage people to exercise more, de-emphasize red meats and unhealthy processed foods, and, you know, stop this epidemic that's killing people. We've reached a point with public sanitation where we're preventing so many diseases. Why are we not launching the same effort to prevent obesity? Why did we spend trillions upon trillions of dollars with COVID mitigation efforts, but 300,000 people every year are dying in the United States from obesity complications, and we're not doing much of anything on a national level? We have a system that produces 4,000 calories of food per American. We don't need 4,000 calories. We need healthy, cheap food. We need Work lifestyles that are less stressful and give more breaks and emphasize walks, emphasize weightlifting, emphasize jogging. And it's not an easy task. It's not a willpower thing individually. What are our policymakers doing to lower the rate of obesity, increase health, lower healthcare costs, and make the whole system more efficient? Thank you very much for listening. This was a beast of an episode. If you want to learn more about obesity, you want to hire Honest Politics to do specific issue research, you can hire me. Just contact uh, me through my website, honestpoliticsllc.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you next time as we seek to discover more of the stories behind the statistics. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm going to go through the sources real quick. Article in GeoJournal called Explaining Variations in Obesity and Inactivity between US Metropolitan Areas by C- Peter Kingdon, a report called Chicago Council on Global Affairs 2019, bunch of web pages from the CDC including one called COVID-19 and Obesity, a journal from nutri- a journal article from the journal Nutrients called Diet and Immune Function. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, second edition. I have to give a huge shout-out to the podcast called Podcast Obesity, a Disease. Actually, the podcast is just called Obesity, Colon, a Disease. I really recommend you check that out. They're quick, short episodes, and they give a lot of good, useful information. An article from the journal Immunity called Western Diet and the Immune System an inflammatory connection. That's the one that had 189 citations and was just a very, very useful resource.